Welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church whose mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Today's podcast is focused on one of the 12 steps of AA. John Glenn taught the steps to the church because Alpha Ministries contends that all people need recovery from something. And the 12 steps is the best program out there and mostly reflects the idea of discipleship and relationship Jesus had in mind. Enjoy and glean from the messages. We're in our third session of the 12 Steps to Recovery section of Journey to Freedom. Tonight we're going to be looking at step three third step of recovery listed out by AA is simply that we made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood Him. Now, making a decision to turn our will and our care over to God or our life over to the care of God as we understand Him has a lot to do not only with us, but with God, obviously, because he's the one that's going to care for us. To give you the context and to kind of catch you up, I want to back up and remind you of the three components of the 12 steps of recovery. Okay, there are three components that follow sequentially as you recover from any kind of dysfunction whether it be drugs and alcohol, whether it be sexual addictions, whether it be just plain approval addiction, just recovery from the flesh is always going to involve three sequential components. The first is going to be a relationship between you and God. And these first three steps of the recovery, AA's recovery program that we've been studying so far all concerns your relationship between you and God first step you realize that you're not God you realize you're powerless and admit that your life has become unmanageable because you can't control it the second step we talked about in our last session is that you came to believe that a power greater than you ie God could restore you to sanity he could do for you what you can't do for yourself now this third step kind of finalizes your relationship with God Inasmuch as the other two are taken, you can follow through in the third by turning your will and your life, making a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand Him. Now, that pretty well summarizes your relationship to God. From there, you're going to, in your recovery process, you're going to be looking at yourself. You're going to be concerned with your relationship to yourself. So the next four steps, steps four, five, six, and seven all concern your relationship to yourself. You make a searching and fearless moral inventory of your character defects. You admit those character defects to another person as well as to God and yourself. You become entirely ready, and we'll spend some time on this when we get there. You, you're entirely ready to have God do for you what you can't do for yourself by removing those character defects. And finally, you are humbly asking God to do what he said he would do for you 
to remove those character defects. So your attention is on your relationship to yourself. Now the last part of the recovery program, you turn, do what I call turn the relational corner and you concern yourself in your recovery with other people. Steps eight, eight, nine, you're really concerned with others by first of all making a list of people you've hurt and you've harmed over your, over your life. And step nine, you become, and step eight, you're willing to make amends with it. You're not wanting to carry it on, you're willing to actually make amends with it. Step nine, you actually do make amends where possible without causing any further damage. Step 10, of course, you are going through all nine steps every day. You're learning to do recovery every day. You're learning that recovery is a process, not just a series of steps, but a process and an ongoing process. You're promptly admitting where you're wrong every day. You're going through these first nine steps. Eleven, you're improving your conscious contact with God. And twelve, you're carrying the message out to others. So the primary goal of the last phase of your recovery is for your relationships with others. So where we are in our series right now is we're just completing your relationship to God. And I want you to action on these first three. And, of course, my goal in, in teaching these 12 steps is not just to make you aware of the steps. I feel like most of you are already aware, well aware of the steps. Uh, many of you can quote the steps. But my goal here is to get, have you make the connection between these 12, these 12 steps, ultimately of AA, especially these first three steps, and what God shares with us in the gospel, in the scriptures. So I want to make that connection tonight, especially with you, as we go through step three. Now let's get back to the step itself. The third step is that you make a decision. You see, when you realize that you're powerless in step one, and your life is unmanageable, you've run out of your own energy, you've run out of your own strength, you've run out of your own effort, you've tried to fix yourself, you've tried perhaps to fix others as well, you've tried to arrange your own circumstances for your benefit, and you realize you just can't do it. Now typically we have a lot of uh, emotions associated with that, in fact, AA has a term for that. It's called hitting your bottom. You know, when you, you just bottom out. Your life falls apart. You know you can't fix it. You hit your bottom. For some people, it's a relational breakup, family discord. For others, it's jail. For others, it's uh, some other catastrophe in their life. Whatever it may be, it's your, it's personal to you. It's your bottom. You're out of control, and you're powerless to do anything about it. You're not really making any kind of a decision there, okay, other than you quit, essentially. That's about the only decision you're making is I've had it. I can't do anymore. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm out of soap. I'm done. Now, at that point, you begin to do step two, which theologically, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I did want to mention it to you. Step two is actually more of a step that's done to you than the step that you do to yourself, okay, that you take yourself. You came to believe that a power greater than you could restore you to sanity. Generally speaking, theologically, 
for reasons I'm not going to substantiate tonight necessarily from Scripture, but generally speaking, this is what God does initially with you to wake you up. He kind of grabs you by the ears and shakes you and says, now listen, you can't do it for yourself, but I can. Okay, And he wakes you up in his own specific, personal, practical way in your life. And as a result, you came to believe that a power greater than you does exist and will restore you to sanity, can restore you to sanity. Now, that essential, fundamental, even though it's small, a little bit of faith that you exercise. In our last session, we spent a great deal of time talking about the fact that it needs to be an authentic faith as opposed to a religious toxic faith. But that authentic faith originated from within you as a result of God working in your life to start with. That's why I say step two is more of a step that God does in you than it is that you take yourself. But an awareness of the fact that you actually believe, came to believe, that a power greater than yourself could restore your sanity is necessary for this third step. Now the third step focuses in on specifically a decision you make. And this is an all-important decision. And in recovery, it's not, all, not only important decision at one point in time, at the outset of your recovery, but it's an important decision that has to be repeated again and again. Remember, I just told you, in the whole scheme of things in recovery, you're actually doing the third step, along with all the other steps, every day when you get to step 10. It becomes a lifestyle. It's a way of life. It's a way of living. There isn't a day that goes by that you don't make a choice then to turn your will and your life over to God as you understand it. Now, it's at some level. But in step three, we're going to focus tonight specifically on that choice that you're going to make, on that decision that you're going to make. Because step three says we made a decision. That means we came to a place where we weighed out all the facts as we understood it. In our minds, what was possible, what's not possible, especially with regards to our recovery, and we made a choice. We made an informed choice, you might say, to turn our will and our life over to the care of God, as we understood him. Now, the founders of AA and the writers of this book, their big book, are giving you here just simply their own testimony, as it were. As a matter of fact, in the 43 testimonies listed throughout the big book, which makes the big book a big book, Okay, and there are 43 testimonies, each one of them will, in their own way, tell you how they made that decision. Each one of them will come to that place and talk about, in their testimonies, they will talk about when they made that decision, the circumstances of their life, and all of them have the same thing in common. They had that spiritual experience beginning in, in step two and culminating in step three where they made a decision to turn their will and their life over to the care of God as they understood it. Now, this being an important decision, not just a continuous important because it needs to be a continuous daily decision in our life, but important in, in its order in the recovery process, I want us to spend some time on what do we mean by this decision? What do we mean when we make a decision? 
They said they made a decision. What, what are we talking about? It has to do, again, with the two previous steps, because in step one, actually, you kind of make a decision to quit. And in step two, you make a decision that maybe there's some help somewhere else besides what you can offer. But step three, you get refined in that decision, and you turn your will and life over to the care of God. Now, in order to make that kind of a decision, where you get a specific decision to turn your will, and what I mean by will here is all of your plans, all of your goals, all of your dreams, all of your ideas, all of your schemes, that's your will. Those are the things you're thinking consciously about, which all, by the way, for all of us, come down to one simple fact, and that is how are we going to make ourselves look and feel good? Okay, those are our plans, those are our schemes, that's our will. We're 100% we're, uh, born selfish, and so we naturally are going to be thinking about what's in it for me, what can I do, what am I going to get out of this? And our will involves all our plans and our schemes concerning how it is we're going to save ourselves. But he doesn't say we just turned our will over, he said we turned our will and our life over. Now, the life includes not only this physical life you have, but more importantly, it includes the personal life that you have. And by personal life, I'm talking about what, what you think about yourself, how you evaluate yourself, how you judge yourself, how you compare yourself to other people, your status, if you will, in life. What position do you hold? Whatever that position is, that's part of your life. It also includes your relational life. It includes all the relationships you've had with other people. You turn those relationships over as well. So when he says we turned our, made a decision to turn our will and our life over, that's an all-encompassing concept. You all follow that? That means everything. There isn't something that we're holding back here. Okay? There isn't something that we're going to hang on to in our will, in our plans, or in our life. It's a total package. We made a decision to turn it over. Now, perhaps the most difficult part of that decision is in, in cap, encapsulized in this next phrase. We made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God. And here's where most people struggle. They wouldn't mind turning their life over to God if they knew that he cared about them. If they were convinced that he actually cared about them, as a matter of fact, they'd be real quick to turn them over. But they're not sure. Now, in order to understand this, we've got to back up a little bit to talk about where we get our idea of God in the first place. Where do we get that idea? Where does that come from? It's called our concept of God. Psychologists tell us that our concept of God is developed in the first five years of our life. Primarily from our relationship with our Father. Now if you think back to the first five years of your life, which I've always found to be difficult. Do you all have trouble doing that? you have trouble thinking about the first five years of your life? I'm not even sure I was alive then. You know? 
The only reason I know I was alive for those first five years is because I'm still alive now, and I had to be, okay? So I, I really have trouble thinking back to the first five years of my life, and so think back to what you heard about the first five years of your life. How's that? Can that help? Okay. Think back to what you heard other people tell you about the first five years of your life. That might help you a little bit. And one of the reasons we have trouble with that is because those first couple of years are known as pre-verbal years. And what I mean by that is even though you might be able to hear and understand what people are saying around you, your parents or friends or other people, friends of the family or whoever cared for you, even though you might be able to hear and begin to put together some of the language you're learning in those years, you're not able to speak it. It's pre-verbal, so you can't really express yourself with words and words and sentences. And therefore, it's hard for us to remember because it's not internalized in us as, as words and sentences. It's internalized more in terms of experiences okay, in our subconscious mind. Now, I don't want to get all technical about this, but my main point is that your concept of God, who you think God is, and whether he cares about you or not, this is the importance here, comes from those, first of all, from the first five years of your life and your experience with your father. Now, when you look back over, over those years, there are some folks that say, well, I never knew my dad. He left right after I was born, or he left before I was born. My mom, he divorced, and I never really knew him. He was absent. If that's the case, your concept of God that you began to develop was God is absent. He's kind of distant. He's not around. Or you may have had a workaholic as a father who spent all his time working trying to, quote, provide for the needs of his family. And so he would spend all of his days going to work. And in his off time, he'd take another job. And so he wasn't around. So your concept of God then was he's busy. Okay, he might be a nice guy, but he's too busy for me. He ain't around. Some people have an abusive father. Verbally, physically. They're abusive loud, offensive. Your concept of God is that he's hostile towards you. Okay, early on, those first five years, you begin to develop a concept of God. Now that concept gets tweaked in time by experiences that you have, religious experiences of one sort or another, or by training, various kinds of religious training that you might have about God. People will tell you about God. They'll tell you, uh, that God is like this, or God is like that, or God is, does these things, or he likes these things, but he doesn't like these things. Okay? Whatever your experience was, the point I'm making is you've developed a concept of God. Unless that concept is that he is a compassionate, caring God, it's going to be real difficult for you to do step three. It's going to be real hard for you to turn your will, all your plans, on how it is you're going to take care of yourself, all of your, quote, coping strategies, over to his care, if you don't think he cares about you. It's going to be real difficult for you to turn your life, whether it's your personal life, your relational life, never mind your physical life, over to his care if you don't think he cares about you. It's going to be hard. 
So a lot of people struggle right at this point. And by the way, while I'm here, let me just give this little disclaimer. There has never been, since Adam, there has never been an earthly father. Okay, there has never been. You can say, well, some may be better than others. And you can evaluate them or judge them or by comparing them and so on. But all of them have fallen short. Every single one of them. In fact, one of the signs of health is that you recognize that your earthly father was a man, not God. You recognize that your earthly father had the flesh, had problems, and you forgive them. You actually let them off the hook. Now, the only way you can really let your earthly father off the hook is to understand that you have a true heavenly father. That he, that God is in fact your heavenly father. Once you understand you have a true heavenly father and you're adopted into his family, you've been born of his spirit, you are his kid, and you begin to learn about that, you can kind of let your old man off the hook. Okay? You don't have to go on and on the rest of your life complaining about your earthly father to let you down. You can recognize that he's frail with the same frailties you are. You can recognize that he has the same problem with the flesh that you did and do. And you can kind of let him off the hook, right, by forgiving them. You can say what Jesus said about the men who were crucifying him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, kids don't come with an instruction manual for dads to read. Okay, Dr. Spock notwithstanding, kids don't have, an they're not born with an instruction manual that here, just read this and you'll know how to raise this kid. All fathers struggle with that. And they all therefore have difficulties. So my point here is not that it's impossible for you to turn your will and life over to the care of God as you understand it. My point is that you've got to work past those preconceived notions of who God is to start with that you inherited as a small child and that got conditioned into you over years of your religious experience. And so let's look now specifically at who it is we're going to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understand him. Now the reason the writers put this little phrase as we understood him in there is that it's going to be extremely difficult for you to turn your will and your life over to God that I understand. See, my understanding of God and your understanding of God, like we talked about in our last session, are going to be a little bit different. Why? Because our spirituality is unique to us. See, religion focuses in on sameness. It tries to make everybody the same. But spirituality, true spirituality, focuses on the uniqueness of the individual. Your relationship, therefore, to your God is going to be a little different than anybody else's relationship. Why? Because you're a little bit different than anybody else. No, one, no two of you have the same fingerprints. God made you a unique individual. You're a spirit being with uniqueness. Which means that you're not like anybody else. You're one of a kind in that sense. And so your relationship to your higher power 
the God of your understanding is what's important here, not your relationship to my higher power, not your relationship to someone else's higher power. It's your relationship to yours. And I can't overemphasize this enough because many people have been severely handicapped in their recovery because they're trying to exercise that toxic faith we were talking about in our last session by simply accepting someone else's understanding of God or someone else's description of God rather than do their own personal investigation. See, I, I don't recommend that anybody follow somebody else's idea of who God is. God is sufficiently big enough, smart enough, powerful enough to have an individual relationship with every human being. He doesn't have to have the same kind of relationship with you that he does with me for that relationship to be a quality relationship and to be beneficial to both you and him. And the third step so is not that you're going to act like I do with God or you're going to act like somebody else does with God. That's not what we're talking about. Don't even let that religious idea creep into your mind. What we're talking about in the third step is you're going to complete your own unique relationship with your God. This is between you and him, nobody else. As a matter of fact, biblically, the only person between you and him is him, God the Son, Jesus. He's the only mediator between you and God. And he makes it real to you by himself again in the third person of the Godhead, his spirit who lives within you. So this is a unique thing we're talking about, step three, making a decision your decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand it, not as I understand it. Now, I've got to be honest about this. After 35 years of ministry and working with folks in recovery in a large variety of ways, I have had the compulsion in me to try to explain to people the God I understand, the God that I've had experience with. And I do, on occasion, share my own personal testimony. And on occasion, it's helpful to folks to say, well, this is how me and God get along. Okay, this is what my relationship to God is like. But I'm hesitant to do that because I don't want it to be taken by you or anyone else to mean that you've got to have a relationship like that. You don't. You have to have the relationship that he establishes between you and him alone. So that's what's critical. That's what's important. In order for you to make that decision, to turn your will and your life over to the care of God, it's going to have to be according to your understanding of who he is. And the first and greatest characteristic about your understanding is you're going to have to understand that he cares about you. Now, God has gone to great lengths to prove to you that he cares about you. If you'll take a few moments just to consider that and reflect on that, it won't take you long to come up with various times in your life where there is no explanation whatsoever as to why you ought to be alive. And yet you are. I find this to be common among all folks that I've talked to, that we've all experienced 
those times in which there was no real good explanation as to why we're still alive. We should have been dead. Now I realize that there are some people that kind of take that all for granted. Okay, in fact most of us at some time or another we kind of take it for granted. Let me give you an example of that. Go get in your car and drive I-95 from here to Broward County. Okay. And when you get there, say, man, I'm glad I didn't get stopped by a cop. <laughs> and don't even think about how close you came to death. But you did. You came close to death, not just those near accidents that you might have encountered that may have frightened you somewhere along the line. But when you stop and think about two vehicles passing each other at that rate of speed, it doesn't take you long to figure out something's going to happen to you. Okay, it can, it can happen very quickly, in an instant. And when you look at the statistics throughout the, the nation of people who were killed in automobile accidents, you realize if you've been driving for any length of time at all, God has done for you what you haven't been able to do for yourself and just preserving you. But that's not the only way he shows that he cares. Okay, God shows that he cares for you, not only in protecting you and preserving you physically uh, from life-threatening kind of situations like that, but he also repeatedly tells us about it in his word. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this tonight, but I, would, I do want to mention a couple passages of scripture that particularly talk about his care for us. In Romans chapter 5, Paul tells us point blank, God proved his love for us. Proved it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now how did he prove that he cared about us? Well, let's put it in our language here so we can understand. While we were yet in our addiction, while we were yet in the flesh, while we were yet dysfunctional, while we were yet caring only about ourselves and not anybody else, Christ died for us. See, God took the first step. He cared for humanity. That famous verse that you see at football games all the time, you'll see They'll put up 3.16 there, meaning John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Now the world is an all-inclusive term. It means everybody. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. What does all that mean? That's King James language for this. God proved how much he loved you by sacrificing his only child. Now, I've, only, I've only got one kid, Angela. Just one. And if I supposed that if I loved you enough, if I thought I actually loved you enough, where it was necessary for me to sacrifice Angela, to watch her be stripped naked, beaten to a bloody pulp, intact to a cross. I mean, that's, that's beyond my comprehension. I can't even, I can't begin to wrap my mind around that concept. 
And that's just a human daddy loving his daughter. See, I can't compare that. So these are, even though it's King James English, John 3.16, it is the strongest language we can possibly imagine as human beings to demonstrate how much God cares, that he cares for you. I mean, I can't, I can't even fathom it. In fact, if that ever came up, if it ever came up between Angela and you, I'd kiss you goodbye in a heartbeat, okay? <laughs> I want you all to know that, okay? No pretense here. I can't even imagine that. And yet God proved his love to us. And then while we were yet sinners, I mean, we weren't even grateful. We didn't even care. We weren't even looking at it. We could care less. We're about our business doing whatever we think is going to make us feel good. We could care less. He still, because of his love, proved his love to us by sacrificing his only begotten son. You see, that's unbelievable to me. I mean, it is, is so far out that I can't really wrap my mind around it. Well, what am, what am I sharing that with you for? Just so you begin to understand that God does, in fact, care for you. He cares about you. Now, there are many other scriptures that illustrate this. In fact, uh, you can find one practically any section of the Bible, any place the scriptures are, you can find the fact that he cares about you. He knows who you are. He knows what designs and plans he has for you. And he cares enough about you not only to call you from eternity past to ordain your life and to order your steps, but he cares enough about you to make sure according to his word now, to make sure that you recover. To make sure that you are complete in his son Jesus. Now, when we began to develop a concept that God cares about us, when we began to realize that he actually does in fact love us, whatever little bit of peace that we get from that, whatever little tiny a piece of that care, that compassion, we began to experience. That is the motive behind step three. The motive behind step three, the motive behind making that decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God, always comes that motive for that decision always, always comes as a result of his love for us. So, depending on your knowledge of his love for you, you're willing to do step three. Now again, we can go back negatively, back to step one again, and say, you've been trying to fix your, whole, your life your whole life. How's it worked? And when you get honest about it and say, it hasn't worked, my life's unmanageable falling apart then you have a little more you have a little impetus to turn your will and life over or when you finally believe that there is a power that could do something to restore you to sanity there is a power greater than you that could actually restore you to sanity and you have that little glimpse of hope that maybe I could get better then you have a tendency a little more of a tendency to want to turn your will and your life over but it's going to be your understanding of the love of God himself that gives you the impetus, that gives you the true motive for step three. John mentions this, alludes 
to this in his first general letter in chapter 4 when he announces to us that we love God because he first loved us. The only reason that we will ever love God, have any kind of loving response to God at all, is when we realize that he first loved us. There's evidence that I've just shared with you, God proving his love to you by sending his own son, John mentions, in that same context, in 1 John chapter 4, he said, and this is love. So he actually defines God's love for us, who, by the way, he also says in that context, is love. God is love. He says, and this is love, that he sent his only begotten son to be the propitiation for our sins. And there's that big fancy 25-cent word there, propitiation. I doubt if you've heard that. I've thought seriously a time or two about working it out, some form of that word, and sending it to Bill O'Reilly when he does those little words at the end of his broadcast. Propitiation, what does that mean? Actually, it comes from a Greek word that's also used in the Greek version of the Old Testament and translated mercy seat. See, in the Old Testament economy where the, they had the Holy of Holies and inside that was the Ark of the Covenant and on the top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. One time a year, they would offer a sacrifice and the priest, high priest would take the blood. He was the only one permitted to enter into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies. He would take that sacrificial blood, he would go in and he would sprinkle it on top of the mercy seat. And there he would say he would make atonement for the sins of the people. So on that day of atonement, Yom Kippur, that day of atonement, once a year, the high priest in Israel would make a sacrifice and he would atone for or literally cover up all the sins of the people for the whole year. Every sin that had ever been committed. Every transgression was ever committed was covered. Just covered. Now that's what atonement means. It wasn't gotten rid of. It was covered for a year. So essentially you're good to go for another year. Okay. And from year to year God would have the high priest make atonement for sin on the mercy seat. On the propitiation. Well, what does that mean? It means that it's that place where God is satisfied. He's satisfied. His righteous demands in the law are met, are fully met. So when he says God sent his son, here in his love, that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, what he's saying is that the sacrifice that God made of his only begotten son covers our dysfunction. The sacrifice covers us. It's what allows God to be fair and continue to love us in our dysfunction. He is propitiation for our sins. Now in that same context, John not only tells us about how, again, how God proved his love for us in taking up. And the important thing I want you to see is before you do step three, before you can actually turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand him, 
You have to receive God's love. You see, you can't love him unless you receive his love. Now, here's the good news. What do you have to do to receive God's love? Okay. What little rituals do we have to go through to get God to love us? You see, this is where all of religion comes in. And again, I want to caution you off of what we talked about last week. Remember the difference between toxic and authentic faith. We're in a program of recovery here following the 12 steps of AA that is spiritual but not religious. So I want to guard against this religion that's beginning to creep in. In your minds, you're saying, okay, now what do, I, what do I have to do then to get God to love me? Well, go back and review with me. How did he prove that he loved you? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to do something to earn his love. He didn't wait for you to be okay. He didn't wait for you to clean up your life. He didn't wait for you to go through some sort of ritual. He didn't wait for you to prove to him that you were lovable. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God takes the first step. Now, here's another piece of the good news I want you all to have in your life. I want to bring it home personal to you right now. In your life, I can say with full assurance, according to the Word of God, He has taken the first step. What does that mean? That means He's loved you. As I just shared with you in those scriptures, brief as it was, he's proven his love for you. He has taken the first step. He's extended his love to you. That's already happened. That's not something that will happen in the future. It's already happened. It is complete. He has taken the first step. What does that mean? Where am I going with this? We love him because he first loved us. If he's already taken the step, then you now have everything necessary right now, this moment, right where you are, in the, exactly the condition you're in right now, you have everything necessary to turn your will and your life over the care of God as you understand him. You say, well, I don't understand a lot. I know. That's okay. You don't have to understand a lot. It's as you understand it. Well, I'm not sure. I know. There's all kinds of doubts in that, quote, understanding you've got. But it's your understanding. Remember, it's not my understanding. It's your understanding. You have, right this moment, everything necessary to actually do step three. To actually turn your will and your life over to the care of God. So what's required? The decision. That's all. The decision. Remember what step three said? Made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understand him. Your will, your choice, 
your decision. Right now, however remedial it is, however infantile your understanding of God's love is, however little it is, it's enough. It's sufficient. Remember how Jesus was always talking to his disciples about their faith, and he always called them, O ye of little faith. Remember that? That wasn't so much a rebuke, saying, oh, you just don't have enough faith, as it was an explanation. You see, in those contexts, when he said, O ye of little faith, or why didn't you believe, what he's saying is not, you, get, you need to get faith, you need to have more faith. That's not what he was saying. Religion twists around and tries to make it into that. What he was really saying was this, you need to use what faith you have. Remember how he described it? If you had the faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, if any of you have ever seen an actual mustard seed, it's a little old tiny seed, isn't it? A little old bitty seed. He said if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you'd be moving mountains. Anybody seen any flying mountains lately? <laughs> when you were straight? <laughs> See, it doesn't take much faith. That's the point. The point is not that you've got to get more faith. That's not the point here, step three. The point is you make a decision. It's your choice. It's up to you. The ball is in your court. Okay, what I want you to see about step three is God's done everything necessary to prove that he loves you. He has, in fact, loved you. Whether you understand a whole bunch about that or not much at all about that, the point is, he loves you. Because he loved you, you now have the potential to make that decision to love him. You now have the potential to turn your will and your life over to his care. Everyone has it. See, the beauty of the, of the gospel, the beauty of the good news is, it's applied to everyone across the board. There isn't anybody that's excluded from the good news. There isn't anybody that's left out because of what they've done or what they understand or what they don't know. Nobody's left out. It's across the board. Why? Because God so loved the world. That includes everybody. There isn't anybody that is missing in that phrase, the world. It's all-inclusive. And he proved that love by sending his only begotten son into the world. Now, all you may know about that is Jesus supposedly came here 2,000 years ago, died on the cross, and rose again. And then he supposedly died for you. That may be all you know about it. Maybe all you've experienced up to this point. But it's sufficient for you to make a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God. I enjoy going through the steps, and especially when we get to the third step with people in recovery, because I know the vast majority of them, especially those that are older, especially the, those in their late 40s, early 50s, Because I know they've tried everything under the sun. 
They've gone to rehab after rehab. They've tried this program, that program. They've gone to church. They've read this book. They've read that book. They've tried this drug. They've tried that drug. They've tried everything under the sun to help to get better. They've narrowed their options down. And they know they've got no way out. They've none tried at all. Those people in particular are ready for a third step. Those people in particular have already been, God's love to them has already been proven to them, not only in the fact that we've been talking about, in the way we've been talking about here this evening, about him sending his son for them, not only in those providential ways that he has protected them and cared for them, but in every time that they tried unsuccessfully to recover, every time they've built a track record of hopelessness, said, I can't do it. And they are settled in their mind, beyond a shadow of a doubt, they are settled on step one. I am powerless and my life is unmanageable. So as step two begins to kick in and they believe that a power greater than themselves could restore them to sanity, they're anxious. It's kind of like the position we're in a lot of times, like the disciples were in when Jesus asked them, said, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And, of course, they were being nice to him at the time. They said, well, some people think you're a good prophet, you're a wonderful teacher, you're a healer, etc., etc." Then he said, who do you think I am? He said, Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Peter made that confession. He turned his will and his life over the care of God as he understood him. And we, we read that and we say, oh, well, you know, Peter walked with him and he had a lot of evidence to prove that he cared for him. He was constantly doing stuff. But there was one time when Jesus announced the very heart issue of the gospel about becoming one with him, that everybody, the great multitude that followed him, they all turned away and they decided, they made a decision all right, they said, this guy's a lunatic, we're not going to follow him anymore, and they turned and walked no more with him. The multitudes walked. And he's left there alone with his disciples. He looked at them and he said, will you also go away? Is that the decision you're going to make? You're going to decide, like the rest of these folks, that I'm a raving lunatic and that I really don't care for you, really don't love you and have any power? Are you also going to make that decision? You see, really what he was down to was this decision we're talking about in, in the third step. You make a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand him. That's the positive side of it. So you're going to make a decision. Every day you're going to make a decision. The positive side is step three. Turn your will and life over to the care of God as you understand him. 
The negative side of that decision that's made every day is you're not going to turn your will in life over to the care of God. You're going to take charge. You're going to run the show. You're going to recover. See, when you don't make a decision to turn your will and life over to the care of God as you understand him, you are making a decision to do it yourself. So you make a decision either way. When Jesus turned to his disciples and said, will you also go away? Peter's where most of us are when we do the third step. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? In other words, if I had some place else to go, I'd go. But I got no place else to go. That's what I like about guys in recovery in late 40s, early 50s. They've been every other place you can go, they can think of to go. They've done, been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. They got no other place to go. And not having any other place to go, that leaves them with only one choice. Mm -hmm. All right, I got to turn my will and life over to the care of God as I understand him. I don't understand much about him, but I ain't got a choice because I got no place else to go. So in essence, the third step is a decision that you make daily. And you make that decision positively by consciously turning your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand him, but you also make it negatively, subconsciously, when you fail to do so. Because at that point you're saying, no, I'm going to run the show. Or I'm going to trust somebody else to do it for me. Or more specifically, I'm going to trust my ability to manipulate other people to do it for me. You see, the third step is really a, puts the finishing touches on our relationship with God because when you do that step, when you consciously make this decision, all right, God, I'm going to turn my will, all my plans, all my dreams, all my schemes, I'm going to turn my will and my life, my personal life, my relational life, my business life, my social life, I'm going to turn my life over to you. When you make that conscious choice to turn your will and your life over to the care of God, at that point, the heat is off of you. You're done. Now it's up to God. What he does with you, where you go from here, it's all up to him. How he leads you, where he directs you, it's all up to him. The heat is off of you. In that you find a tremendous amount of peace, a tremendous relief. Why? Because you didn't turn, just turn him over to God to do whatever he wanted to with you in an in a objective sense. You turned your will and your life over to the care of God. And at that point, he begins to reveal to you how much he really does care. Frequently, I'll share with people to look for ways that God cares about you. I'm going to share that with you as we close here tonight, this session. I want you to look for the ways that God cares for you. And oh, I know there's examples you can think of in the past, I'm sure, that are the big ways. And what I mean by that is he showed you by some unusual, extraordinary circumstance that he cared for you. And he came through for you. 
when you thought all hope was lost and God came through for you. And those are good. I'm not downplaying those at all. I can think of a half a dozen right off top of my head of, of ways that God miraculously, I'm talking out of the ordinary ways that he came through for me. And I like to think of those. I like to go back to those in my experience. And I love it when it happens because I say, that's God. I know he cares for me. And that's good. That's encouraging. But what I'm going to leave you with is, a, is an assignment to think about how he cares for you in a multitude of small ways that are unnoticed. And those things that we typically think of as being just simply a coincidence. You know, where people just happen to be there at the right time. Where things just happen to work out in this way. Oh, it wouldn't have been the end of the world if it didn't happen, but it made your life easier. It made you a little happier. It made your road a little less weary that happened that way. The little things. See, God is not only caring for us in the big things, but he's constantly caring for us in the little things. Little things we, quote, take for granted. Little things we chalk up as coincidence. Little things we think, oh, that was strange that it happened that way. No, that's how he cares for us, predominantly, daily. As you focus on those little things and you begin to see the hand of God, working at your life out in those little details, it encourages you. And by the way, at that moment, at that point in time, you are in fact turning your will and your life over to his care. You're actually doing a third step when you recognize how he cares for you in those little ways. And that's how it becomes part of your daily experience. And so I'm going to leave you with the idea that you need to look at the little ways that God is caring for you. Every day. The little bitty things that happen that seem like coincidence, but you can actually know that God cared for you. So that you would be encouraged to turn your will and your life over to his care, as you understand it. All right, let's quit here for now. We'll take a little break and let Tom come and do some processing. Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes. 